Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. In this episode, David Goldberg, founder and CEO of Founders Pledge, on helping entrepreneurs successfully embed social impact in their businesses. This is the Notion Capital Podcast. Hosted by Paul Papadimitriou. Hi, and today I have Dave with me. Hi, David. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Very good. So I love your background. You have something that <laughs> is very peculiar as a background. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess I could start at the beginning. I kind of had an interesting career trajectory. So I finished high school and rather than going to university straight away, I was sort of averse to doing more education. I got really lucky and got introduced to, um, to the president of, of a private bank in California. And I convinced him somehow that I would be a really great person to hire as his assistant, <laughs> um, having not had any experience as an assistant previously. And he made me an offer that I took. And over the course of the next month or so, I started learning about um, mortgage banking as, you know, scheduling meetings and doing administrative stuff. And it turned out that after about six weeks of doing this, I was according to him, being underutilized as an assistant. And so he put me on a couple month rotational program and I ended up working in a department within the bank that was doing secondary marketing when secondary marketing was a really interesting thing to do. I was also 18. And so it was this very new and fun experience for me where I was working with people more than double my age. And, and so I did that successfully, I guess, for a couple of years, having moved into a, a client facing role after 18 months. And then, you know, Three years into this into this finance stint as a now twenty year old, um, realized that I could probably do it for the rest of my life, and if I did, then I'd be stuck there. And and the thing that I had sort of realized was that not even realized, but internalized was that you know finance was pretty soul crushing, right? So you work crazy hours. It's not not what they say. And you make a lot of money, but ultimately it wasn't something that I felt would fulfill me in the long term. After three years and, um, and a lot of hard thinking, I ended up giving my notice and, and then moving a couple of months later to Europe, which was an oh, interesting wow. sort of thing. Where about? Well, I bought a one-way ticket to Prague and I ended up um, traveling for a couple of months and settling in Berlin because it just felt like the right place to be in 2006. And it was. Actually, some people would say it still is to this day. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I, I guess I'm one of those hipsters that say, oh, way back when Berlin was way cooler. Um, but it's still pretty cool. And when I was there, it was just as a 20-something who'd never left the country, it, it felt like the coolest place in the world where there's art and culture and it was really cheap to live there and still sort of is. But it just was easy to set up shop in Berlin. And, and you know, I was an English teacher doing something really different than what I had been doing in finance and having set up there and actually got an apartment and went through that whole process, I realized that moving to Berlin as someone who didn't speak German was really difficult. You have, um, <laughs> you, know, you think estate agents in the UK or in the US are difficult, you should see them in, in Germany. And so I decided that um, having been through this really annoying process that I'd do what real estate agents in Berlin did, except with sort of that American flair and support and do it for less money uh, and started a business called Apartment Hunters Berlin that worked with people like me to help them move into into flats and it went oh, really wow. well. Oh wow. so and then did you did you keep that for a long time or did so you sell did it, it and... did it for about two and a half years, expanded from lettings into corporate relocations and started working with film production companies and movie studios and then got into a bit of property management and a bit of development and some finance with property developers. 
And then a couple of years later, I tend to do sort of three-year stints in companies. And I ended up, um, I ended up getting an offer that I couldn't really refuse from a friend and competitor. And, and so I sold the business to him and oh, nice. ended up back in the States. Um, and at this point, decided to go to university. From finance to, to Europe, uh, back into the university at, God, it was 2008 then, so I was 24. And Yeah, in 2008, finance was not the greatest of things. It wasn't. And so I, I, I generally don't talk about my, my <laughs> finance background much anymore, but it was really instructive for me because it really showed me, it taught me a lot about how finance worked and how business worked, but also showed me that I really didn't want to do things that made me unhappy. Which is basically why you didn't opt to uh, go into finance for university, right? Exactly. So I studied, I studied political science and public policy. So as a, you know, a 24-year-old who had finally left the country a couple of years earlier, I traveled a lot. At that point, I'd been to 30 some odd countries and wanted to really understand how the world worked. So I studied um, political science and public policy at UCLA, which was great because, you know, I learned a lot about a lot or little about a lot, I guess you could say, um, and really gave me a better appreciation for how interconnected countries are when you really drill down deep into it. Yeah, I have also a background in political science, oh, cool. so I totally agree with you. But but then, did you finish that? Because, you know, you said three-year cycle, so was that enough to finish that? Yeah, I did finish again? it. So I, I ended up finishing in four years um, with a political science public policy. And while I was doing that, I was running a network of Segway dealers. So Segway, you know, uh -huh. like the, the scooters, the, the really yeah. goofy nerd scooters. So I was doing that while I was at UCLA. And it was fun because it was, you know, we had a chain of them in Southern California and up the coast. And it was a good campus job. So all these are like stints. Uh, two of them are businesses, the Segway and the property management in Berlin. But then what's your connection with their startup world? Is there one? Yeah, well, there is now, but there hadn't been. I finished UCLA and wanted to continue on with higher education. So I ended up applying to PhD programs in Europe. I got into Cambridge. I was really lucky. I don't know why they said yes but they did. And um, so I went to Cambridge doing um, first a master's degree in international relations with a, essentially it was a master's PhD program. And after about six months, I realized that while interesting, this wasn't necessarily very practical. International relations and my, my specific focus was on um, security policy in the Middle East and North Africa. We have a lot in common because I also did a master's in international relations. Oh, and well, yeah, about the practicality of it, I, I get it. Yeah, so <laughs> it was, I guess you could say non-practical, but really helped me to understand in a, in a more substantive and rigorous way that it wasn't just governments that were connected, but people, and that there were ties that bound communities of, of people, regardless of nationalities or genders or backgrounds. I ended up, I guess you could say dropping out, but, but it, <laughs> I only say dropping out because it's cool to say dropping out, but yeah, I ended up not, not continuing on right. to do a PhD. And I applied to, oddly, I, you know, I wanted to do something with a bit more stability. So I applied to a bunch of consultancies that all categorically turned me down, which I didn't really understand, and sort of very happenstance wandered upon an opportunity at Founders Forum to join as their founding program director for the foundation that they were just launching called Founders Forum for Good. It was a great opportunity. And this was my first proper air quote startup experience. And so Founders Forum is a community of the world's top technology entrepreneurs and investors started as an event in Europe in 2005 and since has expanded out to Correct. all over the world, a community of 3,500 of arguably the best tech people in the world. And there was this amazing community that we were, as the foundation, looking to harness to do good. 
our stated goal was to support and champion entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs who use tech for social impact. But if you boil that down, it's make the world suck less through technology. It was an interesting sort of experience because I learned a lot about the sector in a very short period of time and also was tasked with building the program that supported social entrepreneurs. So we had a million pounds in grant funding to give away to commercial businesses that had technology at their core, were addressing societal program in the UK, and were commercial. And so it was this interesting mix of we're giving free money away to businesses that are attempting to do good. And I use the word attempting because it's really difficult to balance making money and doing good as a young social entrepreneur. Um, it's hard to do it as an entrepreneur generally, but social entrepreneurs tend to think that by nature of them being social, it gives, there's, there's a free pass about actual revenue generation and sustainability and, and the business model of it. Are you telling me that it didn't work that well? It, it wasn't a huge success. Um, I guess you could say. So we, you know, we gave away a lot of money. We opened up the Founders Forum Network to what we found to be a great group of people, but ultimately the results weren't there. Do you think it has to do with the very typical type of businesses that social entrepreneurs are trying to do, or does it have to do also maybe because of the kind of kind of founders you can you find in social entrepreneurship? I think I think it's a measure of both, but more about the founders. I guess the business model, like, so there is no standard social enterprise business model. You know, we see the one-for-one -one models with like the Warby Parker and Tom's and, and you see Innocent Drinks that gives away 10% of its profit. Um, and there's lots of organizations that try to do good and some of them have it really core to what their business strategy is. Some of them are just CSR. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in the case of the social entrepreneurs that we were supporting, it was we were trying to ensure that the impact was much more core to who to what those businesses were. And it turns out that the founders that start social businesses more often than not care a lot about making the world a better place, but don't necessarily have the tools to execute on that. So it was a case of not everyone was going to be successful, which is the same with any business, but it's a much um, finer line to walk when you actually have to ensure that there's profit and purpose on equal footing or near equal footing. Do you think it's something that can be answered? Do you think it's something that could be rectified to kind of show these uh, social entrepreneurs that there must be a way to profit, maybe a way to exit at some point as well? Is that something that you're working on? Is that something that yeah, you wish it is. happened? So what I do now is broadly solving or trying to, to solve that issue. We launched out of Founders Form for Good, a new program called the Founders Pledge. And the Founders Pledge is a platform through which technology entrepreneurs can commit today to donate a percentage of their personal proceeds to go to the charity or charities of their choice when they exit. The thinking around that was that rather than helping sort of the bottom rung entrepreneurs be better entrepreneurs, despite having social as part of their mission, we could help the best commercial entrepreneurs in the world to embed impact in their businesses and in their lives today. So we just flipped the model and said, Let's, let's actually optimize for you know, the same variable through a different mean. And so we wrapped up all of our old operations with social enterprise and, start, and I started focusing. And it was just me at that point. So we basically moved the team into other parts of Founders Forum. And I spent the next couple of months developing what I thought to be a pretty robust model. Then I went out and tested with entrepreneurs. And it was an interesting experience because everyone that I spoke to said, this is really cool, but you should think about X, Y, and Z. And it won't work for these reasons. So it was, it was like 
most startups with you're doing product testing, it was iteration after iteration after iteration. And we eventually developed what I like to think of as a pretty robust product that is now a percentage of proceeds. So we were thinking about equity in the first instance, but equity carries with it a whole a whole range of issues around voting rights and fundraising implications and and the time and the effort that needs to be put into it. And so the thing that we've identified with this community is that tech founders, the successful ones at least, or even the unsuccessful ones, tech founders generally really struggle to have time and support and resource in what they do anyway. So if we were to engage them about really proactive philanthropy, it would need to be really time minimal and provide all of the support that they need to do it and not encumber them in any way in the long term. So it should support them and really affect their bottom line positively. It could be a very long time between the pledge and the liquidity event that uh, drives money towards a charity. So how do you occupy that time? Um, Yeah, so it is a long time. The average average exit range is seven years from when a company starts to when it exits and if they even do exit. So we've built a program that allows entrepreneurs to sign on to the pledge really, really simply over the course of a couple of minutes. And then over the course of the next years, we're trying to take our our members on a journey and help them to start thinking about how they can do the most good with their business and with their lives straight away. So we have a, a pretty... I don't want to say intense, but we have a we have a lot of events that we do. So we do dinners on a bi-monthly basis. In those off months, we do meetups and brainstorms. And then we do quarterly forums that are only for our members. So really trying to help our community to think about doing the most good straight away rather than waiting until they've had this great success and now retroactively or reactively thinking about, okay, so I've I've made it, now what? Do you usually grab these founders? Do you make them pledge at the very beginning of their own journey or does it, it doesn't matter to you? Ideally, the earlier, the better. But we have pledgers that of, of all stages. So from seed to series E, our smallest teams are a couple of people in a co-working space and our largest are more than a thousand on four continents. So it really does span the gamut. I'm assuming that there are some tax benefits for charities, right? So I know that in the UK, I live in the UK myself, but you just mentioned four continents. So can you apply also some kind of uh, dynamic there for all the different countries you're present in? Yeah, so we're a charity in the UK and we're also um, a charity in the US. And so because of the European Union, the uh, European Economic Area, our UK charity covers all of the tax efficiency for European pledgers, and our US charity covers it for our American pledgers. The pledge is structured in such a way that it's tax efficient for those individuals who are involved when they've actually had an exit as opposed to when they make the pledge. So when they make the pledge, they're generally not going to have much liquidity or, or earnings or capital gains to offset. So we wanted to structure it so that when they actually have their their big success when they make their millions, that they can have the tax benefit then as opposed to, you know, years earlier when they don't really need it. So we're tax efficient um, everywhere that we operate. And in the countries that we're not, we work with um, fiscal sponsors who can provide that for our pledgers. So every founder I talk to, uh, their main focus is always customer, customer, customer. And I guess for you, the customer is the founder. So how do you get this pledge to be known by other founders? How do you make basically customer acquisition to use that term? <laughs> so it's been a pretty organic process to start. So in the, in the first instances, it was it was me going out and talking to the people that I thought would bring other people into it. And it really is about getting the first you know legitimate founder on board. And so our model is based on introductions. So every founder who makes the pledge 
introduces me to at least three others, people that he or she knows well enough to say, hey, I've just done this this thing that I think is important. Maybe you should consider doing it too. And we've grown from, so we started signing founders on in March of 2015. And in month one, I had three founders that signed on. And today we have more than 250 pledges um, across 190 businesses. So that's founders and investors. And those businesses represent valuations of more than $17 billion. So it's, it's grown pretty quickly. Do you have something like a conversion rate? Yeah, it's pretty high. So it's, it's, it's more than 70%. Oh, wow. Oh, that's a good one. A lot of people would love that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's, it's also a pretty straightforward proposition. So we're, we're a charity. We don't charge anything at any stage in the process. Um, we create tax efficiency for our members and our members have complete control over where their money goes. When you think about it, there's very little reason to say no. Some people do, and, and that's okay too. But most people understand that this is something that is good and that by doing it, you set a really strong precedent for the other founders and investors in the sector. Because ultimately what we're trying to do is change the role of business in society and solve that problem that I mentioned earlier, which is make the world suck less through technology. Yeah, a lot of people think that charity can be a little bit broken. Some people say that it's broken. Others say that it could be optimized or, or run more like a business. And we think a variety of things about that. Suffice to say that charity could use some help from our community. So what we're doing essentially is bringing the world's most innovative and disruptive thinkers and entrepreneurs into the fold so they can start to think about having an impact on the world today, as opposed to much later down the line, such that when they actually have that success, they could get involved with the organizations that they've come to learn about. They can start doing projects with each other because it's a community of, of members that interacts. So facilitating those relationships between our community, wherever they are, be they in the UK or in France or in, the, or in San Francisco or New York is paramount for us. Because if, if just a couple of them decide, you know, once they've had their big exit, that they want to go and start a social business, a social enterprise, or they want to start a charity, or they want to get involved with a charity, or really work towards eradicating an issue area, they're much more well-placed to do that now. So the idea is that Bill Gates is one of, you know, our generation's most important philanthropists. Think what you want about how he's made his money through Microsoft, but he's dedicated the remainder of his life to giving away his vast wealth. And if we can get a tiny, tiny percentage of our community to start thinking systemically, create the next or help to create the next Bill Gates, then we've made a, a really significant impact on the world on a shoestring of a budget. So you're really like an igniter. You try to create a movement there. Are all the founders, the, the pledge they're making, is it public? Do they have to tell it? Or did you have requests of people saying, I will do it, but I don't want to talk about it, something private I do on my own? We really encourage our members to do it publicly because in the public space is where you actually can have the impact and you sort of set the tone of legitimacy and you have this really strong signal. But there are individuals who want to do it privately and it's not our place to say, no, you can't do that. So the vast majority of our pledgers are, all, are on our website. They're listed publicly. They're happy for it to be part of sort of public discourse, but there are a number of them, no more than 10 that have done it privately and want to remain under the radar about it. Because for them, philanthropy is something that's very private and very personal, and that's okay too. So maybe not to inspire some of the people who are listening to this, do you have all the, the all kind of startups are pledging and all kind of founders are pledging with you? I mean, from the very little company to the very major one, do you, do you have like a representation of pretty much the entire ecosystem there? I think so. So we have pledgers from, like I said, a couple of people in a co-working space 
space that have raised a family and friends round to companies that are, you know, that have more than a thousand people that have 17 offices that have valuations of more than a billion um, that have raised a couple hundred million in venture capital who've all made the exact same pledge. So it's not changed for, you know, the heavy hitters as opposed to people who've just started out. The whole point is that everyone makes the same commitment and that they're tied together in a community that actually sees them as equal. So who knows what the next big thing is going to be if we get that founder involved early enough and it built into their business model and baked into the DNA of of who they are as a founder that could really change the trajectory of that business and that person and maybe even a cause. For a founder that suddenly wants to do that because he'll just listen to you, uh, what should he do? Should he just try to reach out to you? Yeah, so we have a website. It's thefounderspledge.org. You can go there. You can check out who's involved. There's a quite a bit of resource on it. You can download pledge agreements. Um, th- they are legally binding. They have tax implications, all of which are positive, I'm, I'm very happy to say. And you can pledge in about five minutes if you're interested. We do only accept pledges from tech or digital businesses. The brick and mortar businesses are something that we will get to, but but really trying to focus on this sector for the time being. Or you can email me, which is david at thefounderspledge.org. You, you come to show that you know political science, international relations, that uh, gets you somewhere, actually. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> My mom is very happy that it has, I guess. <laughs> well, so I hope you do that for more than a three-year cycle, because I think it's a very valuable tool that you're giving to entrepreneurs. And as well, it's a valuable lesson for all of us to oh, actually think a bit beyond, you know, the scope of our own businesses. So uh, I would also look at your website very quickly after this call. <laughs> okay. And yeah, so I, I, I'm in it for the long term. Like I, I've been searching for my entire previous career to find the thing that actually mattered, that sort of wedded a couple of different things together in a way that made sense and long-term impact. And I think that entrepreneurs generally won't start businesses because they want to have an effect on society, generally positive effect on society. And they want that to be meaningful. None of our entrepreneurs in our community have done it because for any other reason than that. And so I think Founders Pledge is is onto something. And I'm not sure what it'll look like in a couple of years, but I know that I'll be here doing it. The more people we can get involved and, and the more of a mindset shift we can create in tech, the better that we can make things for the next generation and really start to eradicate big issues. If I can, I want to plug um, a movement of, of people that are thinking this way. So it's, it's sort of, it's not the founder's pledge, but it's, we base a lot of our thinking about doing good in the world on the notion of effective altruism. And effective altruism is this idea where find what, how you can do the most good and then go ahead and do it. Um, and it was started by a group of people out of Oxford, Will McCaskill and Toby Ord, based upon Peter Singer's writings and work, which is let's use data to drive strategic interventions for neglected cause areas that are tractable, scalable, and that can potentially have a big impact, that the intervention is actually supported. So so I want to plug uh, effective altruism as something that any anyone who's interested in, in making a positive impact on the world should check out and get involved with. It's really influenced my thinking about how we should be behaving and the good that we can do. Well, those were perfect closing words, David. So David Goldberg, thank you very much for this. It's my pleasure. 